0: Turn to the the 11th chapter of Revelation tonight. Revelation chapter 11 is where we've come to in our study. You ever heard the expression that says something like this, one plus God equals a majority? I, I know you're familiar with that expression. In all truth, God is a majority all by himself. He doesn't even need the one. But the notion emphasizes this fact that often the side of truth is vastly outnumbered. The world likes to boast of bigger numbers, greater displays of strength, leaders who are strong men that can thumb their nose at everyone else and get things done, and the ones who stand for what is right, they seem to be the butt of a joke, oftentimes in the eyes of the world. And history is filled with the stories of men and women who took a stand for Jesus in the face of overwhelming odds. I dare say anything that's ever been accomplished of value for the kingdom, it's always uh, been an uphill battle against vast numbers Against all odds. And often, those men and women have paid the price for their convictions. And even though the flame of their lives were extinguished in their own dark generations, the light of their witness continues to burn all the brighter. God buries his workmen, but his work carries on. Well, you know what Jesus said about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who were persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then Jesus said, rejoice, be glad, because your reward is great in heaven. He said, for so they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus says, when you were persecuted for the sake of truth, then you're in good company because that's how unbelief responded to the prophets of God going all the way back into the Old Testament. And so you really need to keep those verses from the Sermon on the Mount in mind when you compare them to what we find here in the 11th chapter of Revelation. Because this chapter of the book presents us with two figures who were simply referred to as witnesses who will have an extremely important role to fulfill in the coming tribulation. The word witnesses is used to describe them there. Uh, And and verse 3, it's the word martyr, the same word we get the word martyr from. So to witness, to testify, to that which is true, the Greek word that's used is this word martyr. We think of martyr, we think of someone who has paid the ultimate price for their testimony. They've even sealed their testimony with their own death. That's what it means to be a martyr or a witness. And so these two witnesses described in Revelation 11 will take a stand for what's right in the midst of the worst generation in human history. As the world has come under judgment, as that judgment is growing more intense, these two witnesses will serve a prophetic function much like the prophets of Israel did in the days of the Old Testament. And they'll be outnumbered. They're going to be outgunned. But in their case, two plus God equals a majority. (laughs) So let's read Revelation 11, beginning in verse 1. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. And make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, again, keep in mind, this is how John has referred to these last uh, three trumpet judgments, the last three woes. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail." Now you should pay close attention to the details here and if you've noticed, the chapter opens up with a scene on earth and it concludes with a scene in heaven. It begins with an earthly temple and it ends with the scene involving a heavenly temple. And yet the bulk of this chapter uh, involves the ministry of these two witnesses who will bear witness to the truth at a very dark period of human history. And so tonight, I want us to consider this thought, lessons from two witnesses. I do believe there's some wonderful principles about the Lord and about his sovereignty and his ownership that we can draw from this passage and apply even to our own lives, even in the midst of such a strange passage such as this. Now, when you open your Bible and you come to the 11th chapter of Revelation, what John is doing here. He's establishing context for us in the first couple of verses much in the same way that a filmmaker would do through the use of something called an establishing shot. You know what an establishing shot is in a movie? It's whenever there's sort of a widescreen shot of a city uh, or a place that sort of tells you as the viewer where this scene is going to happen. And then often the scene will cut to something important that's happening there in that city or in that place. So the establishing shot provides context for the viewer. Well, you could think of Revelation chapter 11 as sort of being an establishing shot. And yet, what John is doing earlier in the book, he sort of used the wide-angle lens to sort of look at the tribulation from sort of a big-picture perspective and all that's going to be involved... Well, here we actually see him zooming in on a particular place that will really serve as ground zero for the events of the tribulation, and yet we're also introduced to some real flesh and blood characters uh, for the very first time. Up until this point, we've had some shadowy references to angelic beings and demonic hordes and that kind of thing. But here, we're introduced to two very real flesh and blood individuals who are described as two witnesses. And yet, at the same time, we're also introduced for the very first time to another character that we're going to find out a whole lot more about in the coming chapters. And this is the beast which comes from the bottomless pit. This is the first reference to the beast in Revelation. He's going to go on to be described 36 other times. And in detail, this beast is going to be described in chapter 13, and we identify him with the Antichrist, the one who will be at the helm of the final world government in the last days and during the tribulation period. So John is establishing context here, these real flesh and blood characters, two of which are witnesses to the truth. So in this chapter, I want to point out these lessons that we can learn Uh, and apply to our lives, all of which have to do with God's sovereign plan, uh, God's protection of his own, his power over circumstances, and ultimately the promise that he gives to usher in the kingdom of his own son. So notice number one, uh, the first lesson from this passage is this, the plan of God despite opposition. First couple of verses or so, John is given this symbolic task Uh, involving measurements. He's told to do something. He's to take a measurement specifically of the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. He's to take an instrument of measurement and to make these measurements. And so this is a symbolic reference, many Bible scholars say, uh, to uh, the act of ownership. This is God declaring his ownership Uh, What do you do when you want to sell a piece of property or buy a piece of property? You know, there's this process of measuring called surveying. And there's a lot of measurements that go into properties and that kind of thing. Well, that's what's happening here. John is being told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. Now, keep in mind what's just happened back up in the 10th chapter, as that chapter has come to a close, John has just had a bittersweet breakfast in which he ate the little scroll that had been in the angel's hand. That scroll was sweet to the taste, but it had a bitter side effect. And we talked about how the scroll really is representative of the plan of God to usher in the kingdom. John eats it, it's sweet to his palate, but it has this after effect of sort of souring his stomach. I, I kind of think of it like medicine. You know, medicine, when you were little, remember, the, remember that grape, was it Dimetap, I think? It kind of tasted like grape and it was sweet at first, but then when you swallowed it, it kind of began to sting a little bit and then just before you know it, it made just gag reflexes kick in. But the medicine was good for what ailed you. And so that's kind of what's happening here with this plan of God to usher in the kingdom of God's own Son. It's bittersweet. It's sweet when you consider what it's going to be, but it's bitter when you think about what has to happen between now and then in order for it to become reality. So what is involved with the plan of God in spite of all the opposition? Well, notice it begins with the construction of the temple. John is told to measure the temple. Measure the altar, those who worship there. And again, this is an earthly temple in contrast to the one back in chapter 6, or even the one described at the end of chapter 11, which is the heavenly temple. Do you know there's a temple in heaven? Moses was given a glimpse of this heavenly temple there on Mount Sinai. He was told to make an exact copy of the heavenly temple whenever he was given the blueprints for the tabernacle in the wilderness. If you're reading through the Bible plan this year, you know we've been reading through Exodus and all of the construction and all of the details that went into the tabernacle. Where did Moses get those plans for the tabernacle? Well, he got them from God. And there was a pattern that God wanted Moses to follow, and the earthly sanctuary was patterned after the heavenly sanctuary. God wanted to come dwell with his people, but it would only be on God's terms. And yet you know that the tabernacle would later be replaced by the temple that was built in the city of Jerusalem. This is something that David wanted to do, but David wasn't permitted to build the temple. It was his son Solomon who built it. Now, in the history of Israel, there have been two temples. The first one being that of Solomon's temple, which was magnificent. Uh, It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., um, the second temple was the one built after the exile by Zerubbabel, and, and, and it was later expanded by Herod the Great. This was the temple uh, that would, would have been located on the Temple Mount during the earthly ministry of Jesus, Herod's Temple, which was an embellishment of Zerubbabel's temple. But there's really only been two temples in Israel's history. If you look there on the screen behind me, you'll see sort of a replica of what that would have looked like there on the temple mount itself. Uh, If you look at the the layout over here uh, to the left of the screen would have been the court of the Gentiles. Inside the temple structure itself, uh, you would have had the court of the women here. Uh, You would have had the court of Israel just beyond this door. The court of the priests went around the actual temple itself. Inside the temple itself, you had the Holy of Holies and that was the layout, the design of Israel's temple. Now, Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans under the command of Titus. This happened in 70 AD. Uh, it was Titus who led this campaign to sort of squash a Jewish uprising against Roman rule that really began in 66 AD. And this is well after the events of of the earthly ministry of Jesus. The church had been established by that point. But this Jewish uprising engulfed the entire region of Judea and it ended only after Titus' Roman troops laid siege to the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now you want to know how bad that time was. All throughout the region, more than one million Jews died by Roman swords. The siege of Jerusalem led to such cruel starvation tactics that that those were trapped within the city even were forced to such drastic measures of of, of killing their own children, eating their own children in order to survive. So when the the Roman legions finally breached the city's defenses, they leveled the city of Jerusalem to the ground. They demolished the temple which stood there on the temple mount and if you remember, it was the immediate fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen back in Matthew 24, whenever the disciples when they, were, they were headed out to the Mount of Olives, they were making reference to the temple and all of the beautiful stones and Jesus said, let me tell you, the time is coming when not one stone is going to be left on top of another, but it's all going to be destroyed. Well, that happened in 70 AD and so, from 70 A.D. until the present time, there has been no temple on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you want to see just a live shot of what that looks like currently, the Temple Mount, there it is. Uh, on the Temple Mount right now, there are two non-Jewish structures which stand. You've got the Islamic Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest site in Islam. And that's not to be confused with the more familiar uh, building there, Uh, that's the Dome of the Rock, which was built back in the 7th century, somewhere around 685 AD or so. So in most pictures, whenever you see the, the, the old city represented, those of you who've been there, you've seen this firsthand, but you see that prominent golden dome of the rock, which is there on top of the Temple Mount. Now you know that the modern nation state of Israel became a nation in 1948, but it wasn't until 1967 during the events of the Six-Day War that the city of Jerusalem was reunified under Israeli control, during which time they seized control to, uh, of the Temple Mount itself. But now here's what they did. They handed the administration of the site right back over to uh, the Islamic leadership under the custodianship of the, the kingdom of Jordan, all while maintaining Israeli security control. So the status quo on the Temple Mount now, as it stands, you have, of course, the Israeli government in control, but the custodianship of the Temple Mount itself is handled by Islamic leaders. And the, the status quo is that Jews and Christians can't worship on the Temple Mount. You can visit the Western Wall, but up until just the last couple of years, no Jews were allowed to climb the Temple Mount and offer prayers there on the Temple Mount. And that's been the status quo for the last 55 years. Now here's the thing. John has given his vision here in Revelation 11. The year was 96 A.D., The temple had been destroyed by the Romans more than 25 years earlier. John knew that Old Testament prophecy, he knew the words of Jesus as well as the writings of the Apostle Paul all spoke of a future temple that would stand during the tribulation period. We go back to our study of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, mentioned the destruction of the city and the sanctuary and a future interruption that happens to an apparently reestablished temple worship and temple system. Jesus quotes from Daniel by referring to the abomination of desolation being set up in the holy place. During the tribulation period, the Apostle Paul, he's detailed in his description when he talked about the coming man of lawlessness who will oppose uh, and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. So Charles Ryrie has said of this, that the temple referred to here in the first couple of verses of Revelation 11 is a temple that will be built during the tribulation, or perhaps just prior to the tribulation, in which Jewish worship will be carried on during the first part of that seven-year period, and in which, at the midpoint, the man of sin will exalt himself to be worshiped, declaring himself to be God in a rebuilt temple. So that likely means that the temple will be rebuilt during a a time of global tension all centered in the Middle East. And folks, let me tell you something. That piece of real estate that you're looking at right there on the screen is the most hotly contested piece of real estate right now on the planet. And all eyes seem to be fixed on this particular piece of ground. If you were to look at it from another angle, you're able to see a little bit more of a different angle. The western wall would be somewhere over this way in this vicinity. You've got the Temple Mount here, which most folks traditionally have said that the the Dome of the Rock is built over. Muslims say that it was built over the site where the prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven. We know that's a satanic lie. But most Orthodox Jews and most traditionalists say that that Dome of the Rock is built over what many have held to be where the Holy of Holies itself was. And it shouldn't surprise you that there are many within the Orthodox community of Israel who favor tearing down the Dome of the Rock to build a third temple, an act which would no doubt lead to World War III. I I read this, I thought this was interesting, but in recent years, a guy by the name of Asher Kaufman, who's a Jewish engineer, has done exhaustive work locating the exact site of the original temple. And he's convinced, and in turn convincing many other people, that the temple was not built on the same place where the Dome of the Rock now stands, but slightly north of the dome. In fact, the site he has fixed as the ancient ancient temple site, it's still an area of open ground upon which a single small shrine, the Dome of the Spirits, now stands. And if it's correct, then it would be possible for the Jewish temple to be reconstructed on its original site without disturbing the Dome of the Rock. So when you look at this particular picture of the temple mount, I know it's a little bit blurry, but that dome of the spirits is actually over here. Okay? So you see all of this open territory here on top of the Temple Mount. Now, I've got a book that I read last year called uh, The Temple Revisited. And basically, the guy that wrote that book is making this same argument that this Asher Kaufman has made. I don't want to venture into the realm of empty speculation, but all things considered, that makes for a very interesting read of what John has told to do next in verse two. He said, rise and measure the temple and the altar. Then look at verse two, but don't measure the court outside the temple. <laughs> Leave that out because it's given over to the nations and they're gonna trample the city for 42 months. So if this particular piece is right and the temple could be rebuilt here, then where would the court of the Gentiles have been but right here where the Dome of the Rock is anyway? <laughs> which makes for a very interesting scenario geopolitically. And who's to say that some future antichrist figure won't broker some kind of deal between Israel and her Islamic neighbors, Arabic neighbors, that will allow for some type of rebuilt temple on the temple mount side by side. Maybe the deal of the century, but it'll be the deal of death. So the construction of a temple. But then the the plan of God involves the trampling of a city. All right, so John's told to measure the temple, not the court outside the temple. Why is that? Well, it's given over to the nations or to the Gentiles. The outer court is given to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. You do the math in your head. You'll know that that comes out to be three and a half years which is exactly half of the seven-year tribulation period, or Daniel's 70th week, according to Daniel chapter 9. So the idea is that the Gentiles will be in control of this temple mount during half the tribulation. Now the question is, which half? This is where scholars are like, we don't know. Half of them that I've read say, well, it's the first half of the tribulation. The other half say it's the second half of the tribulation. I'm going to say, I don't know. It all sounds good to me. I'm just going to be along for the ride on this one. But if you consider what's happening here and and the fact that these two witnesses who really are, are the focal point of chapter 11, somehow their ministry is tied in with a temple located on the Temple Mount, a place in which a future Antichrist is going to attempt to set himself up as God and this beast figure is going to be opposed by these two witnesses. And the time will come when this beast will be given authority to kill these two witnesses. It could just be that the abomination of desolation when he sets himself up as God in the temple of God at the midpoint of the tribulation. This is also the time in which he perhaps kills the two witnesses. Or their ministry could start at that point. Again, it's a mystery we don't know. But pay close attention to the details of the text. What is the ministry of these particular witnesses? What does it involve? Well, they're going to preach, but it involves protection of God. They're going to be protected by God to do his will. So the plan of God under opposition, but the protection of God to do his will. Now look at what is said there in verse 3. The Lord says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now here's the thing. The bulk of the verses here in chapter 11 are not so much about the tribulation temple but about the witnesses who show up on the scene. The Gentiles trample the city for 42 months. God will not be without witness even in those dark days. So some things to consider here. Number one, the identity of these two witnesses. God gives authority to his two witnesses, martyrs. These guys are wearing sackcloth. That was the traditional garment of a prophet whenever he was sent to warn people of impending judgment. So you kind of get the idea of their ministry by the description of what they're wearing. I mean, they didn't get their attire from the local Jerusalem, Neiman Marcus, Okay. They're wearing sackcloth that's symbolic of of the message of repentance, mourning. It's an attention grabber. Now the identity of these two witnesses, um, they're crying out against all of the lies, all of the delusions, all of the propaganda that the world is going to be exposed to in those days by the man of lawlessness. Lawlessness. And you think about how this lines up with what Jesus said about the last days, Matthew 24, and what the man of sin will do. Again, what, John, uh, what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, how the man of sin and his actions in the temple are associated with just great delusion that's going to be sent upon the world. The world is going to be under this guy's spell and it's going to be a satanic-type delusion. But God is not going to be without witness. I believe at this point the church will have already been raptured, and yet the ministry of these two witnesses will be so important, especially as it relates to Israel. Now, again, if I kind of take a time out here, you know that there are differing viewpoints. Those who see... uh, Revelation and more of just sort of a figurative sense, the idealist would say, well, these two witnesses, this is a symbolic reference to maybe the Old and New Testament. Or this is a symbolic reference to maybe, uh, um, you know, you've got uh, Israel and the church. Or this is a symbolic reference to the law and to the prophets. And yet, if you just simply take the scripture at face value and apply those same interpretive methods that we would apply anywhere else, I believe that these two witnesses will be two literal prophets of God who will serve a very important function in these difficult days. And perhaps right there from the heart of Jerusalem, from the temple that's been rebuilt itself, they're going to preach, they're going to have a ministry. They're going to be confronting the powers that be of the day for a period of 1,260 days. Again, you do the math, that's three and a half years. They're going to testify of God before a world under the delusion of the evil one. Jesus referred to the last half of the tribulation period, the last three and a half years, as a time of great tribulation. A time in which trouble will be on earth, such as never has been experienced on earth before. It'll be a time of chaos and calamity. And again, scholars are divided on this, but the appearance of these two witnesses seems to inaugurate that time period. Now, who are they? We don't know who they are. Their identity really is not revealed in the text, we're not told who their names are. There are clues in the text. There are traditional views from history which identify them with Moses and Elijah. Or maybe you've heard those who would identify the two witnesses with Elijah and Enoch. The reason being that here you had two men from the Old Testament who didn't experience death. And so perhaps they're going to experience their death in the tribulation period. But here's the thing. There's going to be a whole generation of believers who are not going to experience death at the rapture. So I don't really see that as being a viable argument. Verse 4, John refers to them as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And apparently this is a reference to the prophet Zechariah chapter 4 where Zechariah writes using the same language in reference to Zerubbabel and Joshua and their work of rebuilding the temple in the days following the exile. So it could very well be that these two witnesses in Revelation 11 And their ministry somehow correspond to the rebuilt temple in their day. But most important is the miraculous power that they have been given. And you have to say that their power is similar to that of Moses and Elijah and other Old Testament prophets. And all of this demonstrates the nature of their ministry. The idea is these two witnesses will give light in the midst of a time of darkness. What's oil often a symbol of in Scripture, class? The Holy Spirit. Oil is often symbolic of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which means that their witness is under divine protection. And as far as their identity is concerned, again, a number of Bible teachers seem convinced that at least one of them is Elijah. And the similarities between the two witnesses and the ministry of Elijah seems to be very clear For example, it was Elijah, Uh, the prophet Malachi predicted that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord to prepare the arrival of the Messiah. Now, we know that, in a sense, John the Baptist fulfilled that prior to the Lord's earthly ministry and his first advent. Elijah was taken up to heaven. Uh, The witnesses have the same power to withhold the rain, just like Elijah did, according to 1 Kings 17. Second Kings chapter 1, Elijah called down fire from heaven, which is something that's also said to be true of the two witnesses. What I find interesting is that the duration of both the drought in Elijah's day and the ministry of the two witnesses is three and a half years, according to 1 Kings chapter 17. Something else that I think is interesting, why is it that the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry ministered for three and a half years? <laughs> Others, again, they try to identify at least one of these with Moses. It was Moses and the plagues of Egypt where the water was turned to blood. But Moses and Elijah together represent the law and the prophets, which bear witness to Christ. And so since the ministry of these two witnesses will take place in Israel, it does seem to make sense that... that uh, These are representative of the law and the prophets who bear witness to the truth of Christ, to the Jewish nation in the time of Jacob's trouble. So that's the identity. You say, do you believe it's Moses and Elijah? I'm saying, I don't know, okay? I just don't know, but I see a lot of similarities. Again, what about their authority? The fact that God gives his authority to these two witnesses means that their ministry doesn't originate with man. Their authority doesn't come from man, but from God. And their authority is seen in what they're able to do. Verse 6 says they have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their ministry. They have the power to turn water to blood, to strike the earth with plagues, And if all of that sounds too fantastic, I mean, keep in mind the way that God has often intervened throughout human history to display his power. I know when you read the Bible, you may be under the impression that miracles were happening every day. It seems like it. But consider the fact that the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years and that there are certain seasons, there are certain uh, epochs of history transition periods of redemptive history that are accompanied with displays of God's miraculous power. And so you see this, uh, for example, during the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. God used two, Moses and Joshua, during a transition period from the, the days of the patriarchs to the age of law. And there's a lot of miracles and signs that accompany the ministry of Moses and the leadership of Joshua Or during the days of the kings. Uh, Think about the disobedience of so many of Israel's kings. God raised up two, Elijah and Elisha, to rebuke Israel and to warn of judgment. And their ministries were associated with miracles. What about the exile? God uses men like Daniel and Ezekiel to prepare God's people for their return. Daniel, there are some miraculous events associated with Daniel's life, miraculous visions associated with Ezekiel's ministry. You've got the earthly ministry of Jesus himself. Here you have the miraculous demonstrated by the Son of God incarnate. Here you see the same power on display in the life and the ministry of the apostles, and, and it ushers in the early church. And yet, there's still a time in the future where, again, it's another time of transition. But God will use these two witnesses, whomever they may be, to perform signs and wonders that herald the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, these could be just two individuals who are uniquely prepared for that moment in time, and their ministry is, is much in the same way as Moses' ministry, Elijah's ministry. They minister in the spirit and power of Moses and Elijah. But the point I want to show you is that it's God who gives them their authority. And listen, nothing happens to them until God says so. And so the invincibility then of these two witnesses that we need to pay close attention to. Verse 5 says that they're going to be untouched until their work is done. Anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and consumes them. Kind of reminds me of the words of God to the prophet Jeremiah, is not my word like a fire or a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. God told the prophet Jeremiah, he said, "Uh, I'm going to make my words in your mouth like fire and this people like wood and it will devour them. So the idea is these witnesses will be completely under the protective hand of God until their work is through. It was George Whitfield who said that the man of God in the will of God is immortal until his work is done. <laughs> it's a wonderful promise to keep in mind when you face opposition in the work of God. When you face the threats of an unbelieving world the pressures of an unbelieving culture. The enemy roars and it would intimidate you into silence and fear. Keep in mind that the man of God is immortal in the will of God until the work of God is through. Man may oppose, the devil may try to thwart us in our efforts, but I'm telling you, when we are in the will of God, we're invincible until the work is through. And so we can draw some encouragement from that fact. I'm not saying you need to go out and tempt the Lord your God. (laughs) But don't let fear keep you from obedience and faithfulness. A third lesson that we see here in this text is the power of God over sin and death. Look at verse seven. It says, and when they have finished their testimony. (laughs) In other words, when God is through with their witness, The time, in fact, will come when the beast that comes from the bottomless pit will make war against them, will conquer them, and will kill them, according to verse 7. So they're involved in conflict. Notice the conflict in which they're involved. Just like all the prophets who went before them, these two witnesses will experience hostility from an unbelieving world. Just like Moses frustrated Pharaoh. Just like Elijah frustrated Ahab. These two witnesses will face hostility and persecution from the beast. And the beast will launch his attack, will kill them. But again, they're immortal until their work is done. And even in their death, they're going to glorify God. But even death itself doesn't touch these men of God. Why? Because our God is the one who has power over sin and death. Death can't even defeat the child of God who has resurrection hope. So God sees to it his purpose in these witnesses will be fulfilled. Now notice the contempt with which they're treated. Look at the hatred that the world will show toward these prophets. Uh, The world opposes the light of God's truth in every generation, but it's especially going to be true in these days of delusion. The beast will kill these two prophets, and instead of burying the bodies of them, verse 8 says they're going to be left in the street as the nations look on. Now let me tell you something, up until the last half of the 20th century, people would say, well, this is impossible, this can't happen, how can the whole world see two dead bodies laying in the street? But you know, up until the last half of the 20th century, it was a mystery, but we know now with technology and live broadcast from multiple different time zones, the advent of technology, I mean, you got people broadcasting live videos from, I'm picking their nose and stuff, you know, it's like... I haven't spent a whole lot of time on social media lately, but it's kind of weird that now you can be on social media, and next thing you know, here you've got a video of somebody that definitely does not need to be making any videos and putting them out there for the whole wide world to see. But we're living in a unique period of history, when through technology and the fact that no matter where you go in the world, even third world nations impoverished countries, you've got smartphones and you you have access to CNN virtually in every country, regrettably. (laughs) But then notice the comeback for which they're raised. The world's going to celebrate. They're going to send gifts to one another. Think of it like (laughs) anti-Christmas. These two witnesses will lie dead for three and a half days. But after three and a half days, they're raised to life by the power of God and they're following in the footsteps of their Lord. They've suffered, they're raised, and even in their death and even in their race, it's a witness to the world. Kind of reminds me of that song, by a new song, we, we hear it from time to time. You remember, you can close your eyes, you can say it's a lie, you can stick your head in the sand You can turn away, even try to explain how he was just another man when they nailed him to the cross by his hands and feet and they put him in the ground. Three days later, everybody found out that you can't keep a good man down. It was true of our Lord. It's going to be true of these two witnesses. And it's true of us as the people of God. I'll leave you with this. The promise of God to usher in his kingdom Verses 15 through 19, the seventh trumpet will sound. And this is just simply John's way of describing what is to come. And in the next couple of chapters that will follow, we're going to be introduced in greater detail to some of the more key key players of the tribulation period itself. But the wheels have been set in motion. The plan of God has come to fruition. What is the world coming to? It's coming to the kingdom of Jesus. You think about all of this, I like how Dr. Chuck Swindoll sort of summarizes this chapter. He says that there's one major truth that emerges from this text, and it's this. God transforms tragic situations into triumphant events. And that really is the lesson of the text. What begins in conflict ends in victory As the sweet becomes bitter and the bitter becomes sweet, weakness is changed to strength, death leads to life. What seems to be insurmountable odds only serve as opportunities to an omnipotent God, and two plus God equals a majority. And there's hope for me and for you. Would you stand with me as we pray tonight? You know, listen, whether it be David standing against Goliath or Gideon and his 300 standing against the vast army of the Midianites or whether it be Queen Esther against Haman and his sinister plot against the Jews, it's amazing how God specializes, how he even delights in turning the tables against the world's mindset that says bigger is better and only the strong survive. Here you have two who are standing at a very difficult time of history. They're standing. They're obedient. They suffer for it, but they're vindicated. And to me, it illustrates what Paul writes about in Romans chapter eight, that nothing, listen, what shall be able to separate me from the love of God? Famine, nakedness, peril, sword, Nah. I'm convinced that through all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, you remember that whenever you experience tragedy in life and whenever you tend to judge your circumstances based upon what you see and what you feel. Keep in mind, God says, I've got this. Lord, thank you for your word tonight, your prophetic word. And there's so much, Lord, that we don't understand And it would be foolish of us, Lord, to try to speculate and to fill in all of the details. But the mystery of it, Lord, brings us to a place of trust and worship. We know what the world is headed to, and so we don't operate under any illusion. The kingdom comes through suffering. And as we as your people are willing to do the hard work of ministry, to not be thought of as being popular in the eyes of the world, but, Lord, being obedient to the call of God, leaving the results with you, declaring your word. All the glory belongs to you, Lord. Thank you for this precious hope that we have as your people, how you turn tragedy into triumph. And that's the overarching lesson from these two witnesses. You're a God who turns tragic situations into triumphant circumstances, and we praise you for it.